Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. One of my all-time favorite preachers is none other than Bob Bolas. He loves digging into the Word of God and getting new truths. This sermon was preached back in 2005 at the International Conservative Holiness Association camp meeting, and he titles it, The Lies of the Devil. I know you're going to enjoy this classic message. some scripture in Genesis chapter 3 Genesis chapter 3 and over in Revelation chapter 12 oh I appreciate the Lord so good to be in camp meeting appreciate every one of you that are here tonight Genesis chapter 3, I want to start reading with verse 1 and conclude with verse 4, and we're cutting off here. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. The great dragon, this is being cast out of heaven. The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Brother Scott, would you pray for us tonight? Yes, yes. Amen. Amen. 
Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank the Lord. I want to try to share with you in just a little, little bit of time about how Satan has set up his kingdom and what he has said to set it up. Satan's whole kingdom has been built upon a lie. The very foundation of his kingdom has built and been built upon a lie. Such a contrast between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. In God's kingdom, it is all truth. In Satan's kingdom, it's all lies. Titus tells us, chapter 1, verse 2, that our God cannot lie. But Satan, we find, is the father of all lies. Twists and distorts the truth so that his deceptions appear to be more reasonable and attractive than truth. There are people that are in Satan's kingdom that are following his exact pattern. They have become such professional liars that they actually believe their own lies. But this is just part of setting up Satan's kingdom. Satan snared Eve here and he told her that she wasn't going to die. She'd be like God and she wasn't going to die and she fell into this trap. She traded God's truth for Satan's lie. Adam fell into the same trap, did the same very thing. And when they did that, it robbed men of purity and perfection and moral character. And ever since, man has been in a search for something significant in life. We have been placed on a toboggan slide that has not stopped yet. That's the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. Calvinism states that there's total depravity. You're as depraved as you're ever going to get when you're born. Where in the Arminian view of it is that as you are born and make your way through life, you degenerate more over time and through the years of life to where you can see it unfolding in a person's life, how horrible that life is actually becoming. But we have to understand that all sin is against God. And Satan's objective is to get mankind to sin in any and every area of their life so that they can help in this foundation that Satan has set up. The psalmist cried out against you, you only have I sinned against God. When we sin, it's like I'm sinning against mom or dad or the pastor or the church. But our sin is against God. And against him only. And in doing that, we are believing everything that Satan is spreading and Satan is trying to build on. And he has built this kingdom that goes about throughout our country and our world today simply on the basis 
of a lie. I've known of a number of things in my life that have been built on a lie, and some of it has collapsed, but there's other things that have actually continued to exist. But to think that over the centuries and the course of time to this night, Satan has established a kingdom and built upon one thing, you shall not surely die. You shall be like God. Few of us would say that we have no time for God and no time for his word. But when it comes right down to it, if we're not serving Jesus Christ, we are part of Satan's kingdom. And we're helping to establish all the more his work in what he is trying to achieve and what he's trying to accomplish. Now, I don't have time tonight to go over all the lies that Satan has spread and that he has concocted into the human mind to make us believe, but there are just probably a couple that I'm going to be able to focus on tonight and try to help us to see that it is a lie from the devil. There's probably, I started just making a list one day of everything I could think of that Satan has tried to propagate or spread by a lie. And I filled up the front page and a back page and started on the second page and it quit. Just from statements that I know Satan has taken and used and people have used as saying, this is what the devil said, but it's all lies. How can you build such a strong kingdom on something that's false and isn't true? He was cast out of heaven and a third of the angels in heaven with him. And to think that this was his domain and is his domain. And what he is trying to do is to keep every one of us from being able to achieve what he never can. And that is to have soul salvation and to know God as a personal Savior. Let me try to share a couple of these thoughts with you. One of them is, God will make an allowance, or God will excuse my sin. Paul said in Romans 1.20, we are without excuse. And in Romans 2.1, therefore you are inexcusable, O man. There is absolutely no excuse that we can make or offer that God is going to accept from us. We are standing without an excuse. When we begin to look up, we can see the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is a symbol today that we recognize as being that symbol that there was the Son of God that hung on it. There was the Son of God that sacrificed, uh, became that sacrifice for you and me, that substitute, so that we could know every sin was ever forgiven that we had ever committed. God is not going to excuse any sin in any life. Whether you are in a holiness home, a holiness church, a holiness camp, or anywhere else, God is not going to excuse any sin. 
Many people seem to think that sin is no big deal. It's just something that I can't stop, something that I won't stop. I remember reading some time ago here in the state of Indiana, some of you might remember, about three first graders that, now think of this, five and six-year-olds that were plotting to kill their classmate because they were so disturbed by what this classmate was doing to them. This man over in Columbus back over the last year and they finally caught him and how he was shooting from the overpasses and finally had killed a lady as she was passing by in her vehicle. And uh, in the courts now, it's all because he has a schizophrenic disorder that we have to excuse him and make an allowance for what he did. In our ungodly court systems today, it's as though we're making allowances for sin that's being committed that is crime against others and people have it in their minds because the courts are allowing it. God is going to allow it. But God is never going to allow or excuse sin in our lives. Never. Back within the last two years in Akron, there were two lesbians that were living together and I was trying to think today whether it was five, I didn't have the article with me, whether it was five or seven children that the one had. And uh, several of them, they locked up in closets, would not feed them. There was one that they had chained in the basement and a couple others that they had abused. And when finally they had discovered this, these two lesbians, as they went to court, this was their excuse we didn't have money to feed the children and we didn't want to give the children up. So we thought it would be better that they just die in our closets and die in the basement than to have to be given up and not know who has them. It's all coming from thinking that we can be excused by whatever we do. Listen to me, regardless if you're five years old or 20 or 50 years old. God is never going to make an allowance for your sin or my sin or anyone else's sin. God has condemned the sin. We cannot in any way think that. James tells us, you break the least of the commandments, you've broken them all. Now you've tried to figure out which one of the commandments is the least. We don't get a multiple choice with the Ten Commandments. We have to obey all of them. So let's try to figure out which one God will excuse. Desecration of the Sabbath day. Taking his name in vain. Having other gods before him. Coveting. Not honoring our parents. Murder. Lying. Adultery. You name it. And then try to decide which one of the commandments of God is the least. And to think that if we break the least of the commandments, we are guilty of every one of them. Satan is building his kingdom 
upon the lie that God will excuse your sin because of where you came from and what you've had to be involved in. God is not going to do it. God's going to hold you as accountable as he is anyone. The sin that you have committed in your life. How's, how is it that God could punish Sodom and Gomorrah and to think that he'll let America get by? Why would it have been that God was so disgusted with the stench that came out of Sodom and Gomorrah until finally he rained fire down upon them, consumed them in their sin. And to think that he would allow us in America to think that we are going to get by because in our humanistic and secular philosophy, if it feels good, do it. If you like it, go for it. If you want it, take it. That is not going to be any excuse to God. What he judged then, he will judge again today. I don't know what the state of Indiana has done, but I thank the Lord in Ohio. We've been able to get it on the law and the records now that there are no, not allowed to have same-sex marriages. And Dr. Dobson said he's trying to get 15 more states on the record this next election. But look at this ungodly outfit, the liberal media and the ACLU that's doing everything they can to propagate it and let us know there's nothing wrong with it. They've tried to tell us it's a genetic thing that the reason you fall in love with the same gender is because it's genetic. Can I tell you in all the research that they have done and I've received the latest of research, there is absolutely nothing genetic about homosexuality. Nothing genetic. It's an old depraved desire in the heart that is built upon a lie. And to think that our country is falling for it. Society is falling for it. But God is not going to excuse it. When I think in America of how we've allowed all these years for over, what, 44 million abortions, is God going to continue to place his smile and approval upon us for all that we're doing, all the sin that's being committed, and to think that people are sitting back and they're saying, well, you know, really, they might have a point. Maybe there should be pro-choice. Maybe people should be allowed to make a choice and a decision whether or not they really want to have a child. I wish I could open up to you what I have listened to over the years. The youngest one that I've ever had come into my office was 13 years of age that had an abortion. The oldest one that I've had has been 38. And it didn't make any difference whether it was 13 or 38. The cry was the same. The 13-year-old sat there just sobbing. And these are not her words exactly, but this is what she was saying. They didn't tell me that I would feel like this after I gave up my baby. They just said I was too young to have a baby. And they convinced me to get rid of the baby. 
And she said, I want my baby. I want my baby. Is God going to excuse it? Never. God's going to hold us accountable in America. All the things that are taking place, all the sins, all the crime, and to think we sit back and think we become so educated and so intelligent that, that now we can outsmart God and outthink God and outtalk God. No, we will never get by, and God is not excusing it. We will be held accountable. For our sin. Can I ask you, what sin is there in your life that you think you're not going to answer to God for? What is it you think that you're hiding behind a closed door that God doesn't see? What is it you're doing away from home that you think nobody knows anything about? What is it that you're thinking in your mind that not even God himself knows what you're thinking and what you're doing in your head? You will never be excused for the sin that you are committing. Never. Another lie that he gives is, there are many ways to God. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You must see the cross. There's only one way to God, and that's through the cross. When I was just younger and you, you fellas, my father was Polish and Catholic. My mother was English and Seventh-day Adventist. For the first six years of my life, I was Catholic. Went through the catechism, was christened as a baby, baptized as a baby. My mother got disgusted with the Catholic church, so she drug us off to the Seventh-day Adventist church. I was there, we went there after our six years of age until I was 13. There we went through their, their role of membership and in the Orthodox Seventh-day Adventist and I was baptized the Seventh-day Adventist. I really had a lot going for me. I can remember as a child not being able to put my fingers on it, not being able to put a handle on it, not being able to really describe it. But I knew that something was wrong. Why was it that I could curse? Why was it there were things in my life that I couldn't stop, that I wanted to stop? And I remember when I got baptized in the Seventh-day Adventist church and after the baptismal and I was in taking off the robe and getting ready to go back up to my parents, I remember the pastor coming in because I'd talked with him. And I remember the pastor coming in and he said, Bobby, how do you feel now? I didn't know what to tell him. I felt the same. The only thing was I was a little wetter, but I felt the same. I'd been baptized with no confession. I didn't know what it was to confess to God, talk to God about my sins, tell God how horrible I was and how degenerate I was. I didn't know to do that. Nobody told me to do that. But they had their way. But that Christmas Sunday morning in 1959, when I was 13 years of age, and walked into that little hole in his church and sat down for Sunday school just to get a box of candy. And I thought after Sunday school that my aunt would take me home, but she wasn't about to take me home. And when the pastor got up and preached, I don't remember, he gave a Christmas message, 
I remember when he opened up the altar and asked if anyone would like to come to Jesus that Christmas Sunday. I didn't know what was going on. Something started to beat in my heart harder. Something began to happen in my mind. I felt something come all over me that was making me sick and tremble. I didn't know what it was. No one had ever said anything to me. But there is a way to God. And God knows the hearts of men. And when that heart wants something different than what they have, God is going to do everything he can to get them on the right road. There's only one way. I tell people all over, you can never be connected to a holiness church and leave a holiness church and go to some other denominational setting and keep a good experience or any experience with God. You can't back up on holiness and expect to keep the glory of God on your heart and soul. There's only one way to God. What way are you going? What way are you looking? What way are you on? What are you doing to try to get to God? To salve your conscience? To remove guilt from your heart? What are you doing? Are you listening to some radio preacher? And he says, put your hand on the radio now. And we'll pray. And you'll be wealthy tomorrow. And you'll be healthy the day after. Are you getting caught up in all these schemes that churches have today trying to get involved in all this paraphernalia that's laid out as gospel? Over our way, they're having antique car day for Father's Day at the church. They're doing everything they can to get people added into their church. But where is God in it all? What's happened to God in it all? Where have we placed God? Church, I'm pastoring. Brother Roush will tell you they're Crystal Park. They might sing for 45 minutes or an hour, don't they? I told them, and they'll sing that long, then they'll have a Sunday school, and as soon as Sunday school teacher's done, you have to get up and preach. And I told them, I said, look, I'm not built like this. I'm emotionally drained time you're done singing. I said, I've got to have a few minutes to try to get my composure and get back to order. But how many of us in our churches are leaving little time for God the Holy Ghost to begin to move on the heart and give him time to move among us and let conviction settle down until hearts begin to get stirred and God begins to speak and move? What's happening? Is it that we're getting closer and closer to the lie of the devil. Hey, you're getting a pretty good way. You're figuring out a way. This is going to work. This will get them in. This will keep them there. But do they ever come to know Jesus? Do they ever kneel at the altar and confess their sins? Oh, I had 500 on rally day or I had 500 on, on friends day or I had 500 on a special day. But how many of them actually came to know Jesus? It's good to go out and get them and bring them in. But do we ever allow God, the Holy Ghost, to speak to them and give them the time to respond?
There's a way that seemeth right unto man. There is only one way, though, to God. Another lie, and I hurry. Just bear with me a few minutes. I'm sorry I'm not a sermonette preacher. I'm sorry I'm not. My sin is my own business. And I'm not hurting anyone but myself. That's the most brainless statement I've ever heard in my life. My sin is my own business. I remember my brother before he came to know the Lord. He had four boys and I don't know, he smoked two or three packs of cigarettes a day. And the doctor told him, said, I want you to know the boys that you're smoking around your sons. It's doing more damage to them than it's actually doing to you. You know what statement my brother made? I remember talking to me, but he said this to the doctor. He said, that's not my worry, that's their worry. This is my life, that's their life. I thought, what a brainless statement to make. Our sin affects everybody involved with us. Sin is just not your business. If you sin in your home, it's touching your sister, your brother, your mother, your father, your grandma, your grandpa. It's touching everybody. It annulates clear around. Sin affects everyone. Everyone that touches your life, it affects. So the next time you go to sin, don't think that it's just your sin and it's just your business. Because it affects the lives of everyone that you touch. Another lie that he says is, there's no judgment day. You don't have to worry about anything. Because when this life is done, it's done. There's no hereafter. Don't believe this stuff about there being a God and a hereafter and a heaven and a hell. There's no such thing. We're all going to just die like dogs and be forgotten about. I had a canary or a parakeet back a few months ago. I called her Twinkie. She was yellow. That, twink, that, that bird, somebody want to know how I knew the difference between a female and a male? I said, the only thing I can tell you is this. That bird, when I would leave, for a couple days and come back, it wouldn't look at me. I'd put my finger in the cage. It would always jump up on my finger. It wouldn't even jump up on my finger. I'd have to be there a while and talk to it and coax it and say, come on, Twinkie, come on, Twinkie. And finally, it'd get up on my finger. I'd bring it out and say, now kiss me, and it'd start pecking away at me. I really like that little bird, just an old parakeet. But when Twinkie died back, I think, in March, that was the end of Twinkie. There was no more Twinkie. When our dogs die, that's the end of doggy. There's no doggy heaven. But when you die and I die, there is a heaven to gain or a hell to shun. 
because there is going to be a judgment day when every man will stand before God and give an account to God for every thought and every word and every deed that is ever committed. It's appointed unto man once to die and then after this, the what? The judgment. There will be judgment. Look who is going in. John tells us in Revelation 21, 18, who's going to stand in jeopardy of the judgment. The fearful. Those that are afraid of men. Afraid to stand for truth and God. Today when we had to run to Walmart. And we were in there and I was just a little bit behind my wife on one of those trails. And, and she'd be walking down there and I'd look up and I'd see different people go. They're all running around half clad. And she comes in looking like a lady. It didn't take me long to march right up there and stand by her side and walk alongside of her to let that crowd know, look, this is my wife, and I am so proud of her. She looks like a lady. She acts like a lady. She talks like a lady. But we are so fearful of what people are going to say about us. We're so fearful of what they're going to do to us because we tell them, I'm a born-again Christian. I'm a holiness believer. I believe in holiness of heart. The unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers. When I get there, I think, you know, Jesus said that you don't even have to take somebody's life to commit murder. All you have to do is have hatred in your heart and you will be judged as a murderer. From law to grace. I remember when I was working with Brother Darnell in the camp a number of years ago. He was preaching away and he got onto the subject and he made this statement. He said, there's no way you will ever get to heaven being cold in your heart against somebody. And he backed up and he said, no, you'll never get there if you have any cool feelings towards anybody. Mm, a judgment day. Does that bother you to think of a judgment day? Every semester, I teach at the University of Akron. And the very first day of every class, I give them a syllabus. Every class, 15 weeks, 45 classes. Every day, it's on there what chapter or chapters are to read. Over on the side, it tells them what they have to turn in for that class or what they have to participate in for that class day. I tell them while you're in this class, this syllabus becomes your Bible. But do not ask me to read it to you again. This is college. You've got it. Know it. When the work is due, have it ready. I will not read it again. I'll not tell you every day what you're supposed to do for the next class. You've got the syllabus. Learn to use it. There's something that goes right in there on the first page about two-thirds of the way down. It says, now, you are allowed to miss two classes. I don't care what you do with them. But you're only allowed to miss a total of five. If you miss more than five, you're excused from the class. 
and you get an F for the semester. You're only allowed to miss five. Never fails. 10th, 11th week, I have students that come up to me and say, Dr. Bolas, how many classes have I missed? The 10th, 11th week, how many classes have I missed? And I'll look at them and say, how many do you think you've missed? I think I've missed too many. Then why are you still in the class? Well, I was hoping that you would have mercy on me. I was hoping you would understand. I said, what does the syllabus say? I think I, I said, get it out and read it to me. They'll read it to me. And I'll say, now let's look and see how many you've got. One, two, three, four, five, six. Does that mean I get an F? Yes. That's what it means. You've got an F. You missed too many classes. But can I make it up? No, I'm not coming to the 46th class to help you make it up. Is there any extra work I can do? No, there's nothing extra you can do. What is it? This is judgment day. You get what you deserve on judgment day. I remember in a church that I pastored in West Virginia. Had a fellow that was doing things that weren't right and and uh, started in an area of life committing sin. And I just told him one day after church, I said, I, I want to meet with you after everybody gets out. And so he hung around and they left. And I said, I closed the door, locked it. And I said, come on up. We're going to sit down in the front pew. We went up and sat down in the front pew. I asked him how it was doing. and Gave me some kind of glib remark. And I said, I want to tell you something. I don't want you to get upset at me. But I said, I'm your pastor. And I said, you're involved in things that I need to tell you I know about. And you could just see the blood draining from his face. He started getting nervous. And I started telling him, not what I heard, but what I knew. And he wanted to start making excuses. I said, no, no, no. There's no need to go there. You're guilty and you know it. And I said, what you need to do is confess it to God and get it taken care of. I have thought ever since I did that, that man became so frightened because he was caught by another human being. But what is it going to be like to know that we stand before an almighty God and all the mercy and love is pushed aside and we stand in the presence of justice. We get just what we deserve. No mercy, no love. It's justice at the judgment bar of God. But Satan is trying to get us to think, don't worry. And it gets so that life becomes haphazard. We can do anything we want to do that because there's no judgment day coming. We can go anywhere, say anything, do anything, wear anything. And there's never a judgment day. But no, there is coming a judgment day. And we will give an account to God for what happens. Last, let me just give you this last one. The devil will try to convince every one of us that we've got all the time we need. Not a one of us have to worry about time. 
But the writer in Hebrews 3, 7 said, Today if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today. James said, For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appeareth for a little while and then vanisheth away. You've got all the time you need and want, so why get in a hurry about serving Jesus? Erwin Lutzer, pastor of the Moody Church, put a book out some time ago, and the title was One Minute After You Die. Could I ask you something? Where are you planning on being one minute after you die? I've buried them, stillborn. I've buried infants. I've buried children. I've buried teenagers. I've buried young adults. I've buried middle age. I've buried the elderly. Death has no respect to any age. None. But if I can just have enough time to do everything that I want to do in life and everything that I want to accomplish, then I'll turn the rest of my life over to God. Do you know that the devil will see to it that you will never get to that place? Never. Just plenty of time. Never have to worry because you'll always be in charge. But you know there's going to come a time when you will not be in control over your ending. Never. About a year ago, I started working with a man. I just got a call today in between morning and afternoon service. And I've been calling on him. He came to church in, I think, maybe... Brother Roush, you probably didn't even know it. I called on him, um, or he came to church Easter Sunday morning. That's the first he's been there. I don't know if he's ever come before to the church. I don't know if he's ever gone to church. But I've been working for him for about a year now. And I went in last Sunday night after church, went to his home, and he had three sisters that were there I'd never met before, and his wife was in his room upstairs. And so I waited a little bit, and she came down. And I said, I've just come to see Dick. I'd, I'd like to see him be, before I told her I was coming out to the camp meeting. I said, I'd like to see him before I leave. She said, sure, come on up. So I went up. And just from, a, just from I was there just a few weeks ago or maybe a month ago. When I walked in, I couldn't believe what I saw. Little skinny arms. Frail, emaciated looking. And just in... Easter time in March, he was sitting in our church under the sound of the gospel. I'd been in his home, I don't know how many times, and prayed with him. We've been praying for him almost every service in the church. And every time I'd go to see him, he'd say, keep praying for me. I'm going to get right. Keep praying for me. I know what I ought to do. Last Sunday night, I had prayer with him. My heart was so broken. I took a hold of that frail, skinny hand. And I begged God, I begged God to give him enough time and enough strength to pray through. When I was getting ready to leave. I said, Dick, I promise you, I will pray. And he looked at me in a frail tone. He said, I promise you, 
I just got that call today in between services. They said, we didn't know if you had heard yet, but Dick died. The first thought that came into my mind and into my heart, oh God, did Dick have enough strength to pray and seek forgiveness? Two years been fighting pancreatitis cancer. Two years. God allowed him two more years. But even though he was dying with cancer, knew he was dying, Satan prompted this lie and put this lie into his mind that you'll have plenty of time. He got so frail and got so weak, he couldn't pray. Oh, I could camp meetings. People that have left camp meetings and never got home. Never saw another, another morning. Sat through camp meeting, all the services, the blessing of God. And the devil kept telling, you've got plenty of time. Don't worry. It's hot. Do you know something? This is nothing. If we're miserable in this, this is nothing. If we can't stand this... How do we ever think without God and going out into eternity we'll be able to be dropped into the confines of hell into a fire that will burn for all of eternity. And yet Satan has made us believe we have plenty of time to keep putting it off and waiting and waiting and waiting. Oh how he's built his kingdom. One of my churches, a man came on Sunday morning. I remember him sitting there yet as I was preaching. and He didn't have a top coat on. He had a white shirt. And he kept going like this as I was preaching to his shirt. When he was gone, I'd tidy up the church. Went to the pew he's in and there he pulled that button off of his cuff on his white shirt that he'd be got under such conviction in the service and God moved on him and he'd just pop that button right off his shirt sleeve. I picked it up and his sister came to our church as a good Christian and I gave it to her that night and I said, Jan, this, is, this belongs to your brother. That Monday morning, nobody knows what happened. Nobody. This was Sunday morning. I'm not telling you something that I've read. I'm not telling and making up some story to you. I could go on and on and on and on and tell you story after story of how Satan has lied to so many to make them think you don't have to worry about this service. There's always another one. But the sad part of it is there's not always another one for some. That Monday morning he parked his car where he always did. He'd have to walk across the tracks, go into the warehouse and work for the day. The engineer of that train said he doesn't know what happened. Said he he saw the man when he was coming down the tracks and the next thing he knew, the man was on the track and that locomotive hit him and hurled him out into eternity that fast. Just a morning prior, he sat in my church, listened to the gospel, was under conviction and the devil got him to believe he had more time. If he could have only known he was going to drop into hell the next morning. 
None of us know. None of us know. But all the lies that the devil puts into our heads and makes us believe, even in camp meetings, in camp meeting time. Do you know there are people that put more time in the planning of vacation than they are in getting ready for eternity? My wife and I go out every year to Colorado Springs. I go out there for my special training, and every year I get it all done in one week. But we start planning before we ever leave to come back or go back. Last year when we left, I was telling her, I picked up brochures, and I said, we're going to go see this. We're going to go here. We're going to travel there. And all this year, we've been making plans to go back in August to Colorado Springs we take time to set certain 10 days aside. We start saving our money. We start planning. We start getting brochures. We start getting our airline tickets and where we're going to stay in the motel and where we're going to eat. And we take all that time to prepare for 10 days. How much time do we take to prepare for eternity? We've got plenty of time. Why worry? Why worry? Let me close with this. I was a young preacher. This man was in his early 70s. I got a call one morning and Sunday morning. He said, would you go up and see so-and-so at the hospital? And I said, sure, what's his name? He gave me his name and what? room number he's in. I made my way up before service Sunday morning. And I got up there and he was dying with lung cancer. And I called him by name and I said, have you ever known the Lord? And I'm telling you the truth what he told me. He said, you know the church you're pastoring? I said, yes, sir. He said, I went there as a teenager. He said, I had a call to preach. And he said, I made up my mind I was not going to preach. And he said, all the way through my life, I've had nothing but heartache and tragedy. Telling me, of course, with a weak voice. And I said, Bill, do you think God can save you right now? Do you feel like God can save you? And he said, I don't know. He said, why would he save me now? I said, well... Because of his great love and his great mercy, he can save you. He said, tell me how. So I tried to lay out the Roman gospel map to him. I told him he needed to confess. And I said, make this your prayer. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, forgive me. Here he is in his early 70s, and this was way back how many years ago, sat in the church that I was pastoring as a teen, got saved, and God gave him a call to preach, and he backed up on it all, and here he is now ready for getting to be taken out into eternity. I went back and saw him all a few days later, and I said, Bill, how are you coming? Kind of had a half smile, and he said, Preacher, he said, I think I'm going to make it. I said, what do you mean? Oh, he said, I think I'm going to beat this. And I, beat what? 
I'm going to beat this cancer. How are you going to beat it? Oh, I feel a little stronger since you were in here and prayed for me. I think I'm going to beat it. Well, I said, have you been praying and asking God to forgive you? Well, he said, not really. I said, Bill, I don't want to be a preacher of doom. But I said, I want to be honest to you and with you. I said, you're not going to beat this. He has a little pan there, little silver aluminum bedpan that he's spitting up blood in his lungs in. And Satan has him convinced he's going to beat it. I kept going back and he kept getting weaker and weaker and weaker. Finally, the last time I went in, I said, Bill, listen, here's the words again. Just say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, forgive me. I said, make that your prayer. Jesus, forgive me. I prayed with him and started to leave his room and got to the threshold of the doorway and turned around and looked at him. And I couldn't leave. I turned around and went back. And I tried to see him how desperate he needed to get. I wanted to try and impress on him that he wasn't long for this world. But Satan had so lied to him and convinced him that he was even going to beat it right down when he was in the death row. Nurse across the street lived from us in our inn and she was ahead of that, that floor. I got a call early one morning that he'd passed away. And I, when the nurse across the street came home, I remember talking with her, Mrs. Hannah. I said, Mrs. Hannah and I named the man and the room number. And she said, yes. She said, I wasn't with him when he died. But she said, one of the other nurses said this, said it was rather strange. Said they were in his room just a matter of minutes before he passed away. And he was mumbling this, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, forgive me. When are we going to stop listening to the devil? When are we going to let him stop dragging us down? Because of everything that he's telling us. And we're laying hold of it and believing all of it only to know we're running out of time. We don't have plenty of time. We may not see the grave. Jesus may come first. But regardless of which it is, we need to make sure that every sin is under the blood. And we have a clear conscience void of offense but toward God and man tonight. To know that every sin has been taken care of. No, we don't have plenty of time. You don't know how much time you have. I don't know how much time I have. Can I ask you this tonight? Have you been listening to the lies of the devil? Do you know you're ready to meet Jesus? Do you know you're not part of the devil's kingdom tonight? I want you to know you can break free from it and come to know Jesus in his fullness. Let's stand with our heads bowed. Brother and Sister Fuller, if you'd come, please. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for letting the Holy Ghost speak tonight. Uh, we know there's a work that needs to be done, and we know you're wanting to do it. Uh, 
You're able to do it. We don't know who we've been preaching to, oh God. But we know there's those here tonight that are in trouble. There are those in this camp meeting that need to come to know Jesus as their personal Savior. There are those here tonight, oh God, that have put it off and put it off for so long that tonight they're just still thinking that everything's going to be the same and they'll be able to leave camp meeting and come back when they want to. But oh God, we pray, let the Holy Ghost, let the Holy Ghost help them to come to the reality of where they are. Let the Holy Ghost convict tonight. Speak to our hearts again, oh God. Bring us, we pray, bring us, we pray to reality uh, till we know that God wants to help and God wants to save and God wants to deliver. So do it tonight for us in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. While they sing. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. Keep passing.